I'm Sophie Frost. This is The Hidden Constellation. For the past year, I've been travelling the length and breadth of England, visiting the museums that make up the Science Museum Group, talking with staff and volunteers about the role of technology in their everyday working lives. We will shortly be arriving at Bradford Interchange. If you are leaving the train here, mind the gap between the train and platform edge. I've been speaking with individuals across the workforce at Science Museum Group to understand the new, hidden, distributed, legacy and collective forms of digital work taking place across this vast and eclectic group of science and technology museums. The Hidden Constellation explores the future of work in museums, presenting the Science Museum Group as a case study of a museum service thinking about the value and impact of technology in the work that it does. In this episode, I want to focus on legacy in the use of technology at Science Museum Group. I'm specifically interested in how legacy systems, both processes and procedures and software and hardware, have affected the ways the museum functions in the present and the kinds of jobs that have evolved as a result. In other words, I'm interested in how past ways of working with technology have informed present ways of working with technology. Pretty sure when I started working here, we didn't have the internet. Okay. Don't laugh at me. It's <laughs> that long ago. Well, at least, well, it probably existed, you know, in the world. Yeah. But yeah, not here. Um, and so that that was yeah, that was just how it was. And then I recall that we had a member of staff who I think was actually part of the learning team. Mm-hmm. Um, he was kind of a, a technical support person. And he sort of started to take on a little bit of responsibility for social media, internet presence kind of thing. But it, it, at that point, it felt kind of informal. And I remember there were discussions with external suppliers to get some kind of social media presence, um, which kind of didn't go anywhere to begin with. And, so there, there were kind of feelers being put out to kind of how are we going to do this, how is this going to go forward? And it felt like at that point it was this museum, National Museum of Photography, Film and Television as it was then, individually doing that rather than a group-wide activity, Yeah, I think. Um, so it was kind of feeling our own way at that point. Um, and at what point we actually started to employ people to like properly do it as a job in a professional fashion, I can't actually remember. It was probably pretty swiftly. Mm. Probably only you know a couple of years into my tenure here, which is still quite a long time ago. Um, but yeah, it took. It, yeah. I, I mean, I can't not ask you what life was like here without the internet. <laughs> What was life like for the internet? Because museum work must have been totally different. Well, it's crazy to think about because museum work, a lot of it is international work. And so now, well, I'll just fire off an email to Japan or wherever and they will pick it up when their working day starts and that's fine. But of course, back then, you just had to ring people, fax people. God, fax machines. (laughs) Yeah, that was the thing. We had to like send faxes to people across the world, which... Well, I mean, it worked at the time. I mean, it was like, ooh, facts. But, um, but now it's just so much easier in terms of contacting people. 
but then I suppose the flip side of that is there's that immediacy mm. issue. Mm. It's like, no, I need to get that to them now. Why haven't they responded to me? You know, and there's just like too much immediacy if you can have such a thing. Um, so it's changed a great deal. Before I go any further, it's important to say a few words about legacy as a concept in museums. Museums are legacy institutions. In recent years, we've seen some highly challenging but incredibly important conversations, exhibitions and activities occur that have raised awareness of the imperial and colonial legacies in museum collections, alongside growing commitment to decolonise these legacies for modern-day communities. There continues to be important work done in this area, with much more still to be done. So we have a lot of legacy data that was catalogued at a time when attitudes to material culture and other cultures was pretty, pretty bad. And actually, people who are working and interacting with the database on the daily are the ones who are seeing this all the time. Yeah. Um, I can't, you know, I can't think of the amount of times I've opened up a record and been like, oh, that's just someone's eyes. Or like, oh, that's a racial slur, you know, I shouldn't, shouldn't see that. Um, and I don't think you can avoid that conversation when you talk about digital labour. Um, hence, someone's really unhappy. We might just wait two seconds. Yeah. While colonial ways of doing things continue to be confronted daily in some digital labour, indeed all labour of staff, this episode is going to focus on a different but sometimes interlinked kind of legacy, that of computing. We can learn some important things about institutional change by taking a more forensic view of how computers entered the working lives of museum practitioners. There is legacy digital labour literally everywhere at the Science Museum Group. What we're going to hear in this episode is that legacies are not always old or outdated methods of using technology, but that they can pave the way for standards that follow them in both brilliant and difficult ways. First, let's head to the Science Museum in South Kensington and to the museum's IMAX theatre. Here, behind the scenes of the museum, or should I say, behind the screens, I found legacy digital labour in its truest sense, in the work of the cinema projection team who look after the museum's two IMAX projectors. According to Tim Boone, head of research and public history, who we will hear from later, educational film screenings at the Science Museum have taken place since the 1950s, when the Scientific Films Association collaborated with the Public Film Programme to show scientific films that were complementary to the museum's collections, increasing the accessibility of the collection for different audiences. Here's the moment that Mark Cutmore, Head of Commercial Experiences, took myself and my producer Chris into the IMAX auditorium. It is one of the biggest in the UK. Um, the aspect ratio of our IMAX is quite special as well. Um, it's, in, it's in an aspect ratio that directors like, and they, they like to film in, so, so directors like Chris Nolan, um, Denis Villeneuve, they, you know, they, they're the auteurs of film and they, they film in a particular aspect ratio, which then for different cinemas gets cropped or adjusted mm -hmm. and tweaked, but our screen can, can screen it in, in the format that many of them prefer, which is quite special. So Chris Nolan actually comes here to watch films when, really? we, when we screen blockbusters. He comes here to screen his own rushes with his team sometime, mm. which is quite special. Um, That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. 
and that's why we, when we decided to refurbish, we wanted to preserve the legacy. So instead of getting rid of the old 70 mil technology, we preserved it and installed a laser projection system next to it. So we can still project in 70 mil film when we want to. Will we get to see that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got a 400 seat auditorium here. Uh, as you were saying, we, it's open every day. The cinema, the, the museum's open, mm. um, screening the 45-minute documentaries, and then a couple of times a year we'll do blockbuster films. Usually, films we, we're not ever going to be a big commercial cinema running every film that comes out. We want to pick certain films that we think work for our audience, that, that align with the museum, uh, and films that really are justified by the, uh, the size of the screen. And you can't hear it now, but the. Everyone, when they go and see an IMAX, they, they think about the screen. Normally what surprises them is the sound, and that's the sound quality of mm. an IMAX, I think is unparalleled. It's incredible. I'm just looking for speakers now. There are, there's a 12.1 surround sound system here, um, dotted around the auditorium, right. in the ceiling, behind the screen. Wow. Um, and it okay. is powerful. It, we, uh, we've done sound demonstrations in here where we've had sort of rainforest uh, soundscapes and you would think there was a, at one point a frog sitting on your shoulder <laughs> and then it starts raining and it feels like it's raining in the auditorium. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable. Um, yeah, it's pretty special. The technology is changing and I think attitudes are changing and I do think it's always great when there's more convenience and accessibility for audiences mm. but there's also something really special about the cinema specifically and the way that you can you can show people film mm. and you can't really do that at home most people have got pretty decent tvs this, these days but there's distractions your cat or dog might be running in out your kids might be running in out mm. it's it's not doesn't create that moment, that special interaction that you get when you go to the cinema. So I, I think there's something really precious about, yeah. about the cinema experience that you, you can't necessarily replicate. Mark took us into the projection booth to meet Matt Raymond, the museum's projection manager, who started to talk about the labour involved in the new laser IMAX projector. So at the moment, we're, still, we're getting used to the, the laser. It's very different. Yeah. It's not as uh, labour intensive as this. You know, we had to be a bit of a a little bit of electronics, a little bit of plumbing, a little bit of mechanical. So yeah, so it's a very, very different beast. So we will be the first line of call to fix this and we have IMAX on the, on the phone for assistance and then an engineer will come out if we're stuck. Matt was talking to us in a room that had two huge cinema projectors side by side, one 70mm and one brand new digital IMAX. Essentially, what was in front of us was a potted recent history of cinema production, or at least IMAX cinema production, not part of the museum catalogue or collection, but nevertheless there, at the very heart of the museum. This next bit of audio is noisy. That was the sound of these vast, whirring machines. Very different. Yeah. And also the noise. Uh, we've become so accustomed with the noise of this projector that we, we sat next door and we could immediately tell if there's something wrong. I'd say it's not similar to sort of an aircraft sort of wearing up. Oh, you know, really? there's, there's a lot going on, and it's quite quite substantial. And you know, as Matt was saying, him and his team got got so attuned to the sounds that they'd just be sitting next door and go, "Oh, that's changed." And some, you know, it's amazing. 
So as the, as the film comes through the projector, the IMAX system has like a, a rolling loop. So as the film comes through, I'm trying to get out my phone bottle. Do you want to touch? Yeah, I'll get So as the film comes through, yeah. the piece of film is squished into here, so it, it forms a loop. And as it comes towards the lens to be projected out, you hear this little pop. Well, in a minute. That pop there, okay. as, the, as the loop's being formed, an air jet will fire to cushion it. Then it comes through to the projector. And right in here, if I open up, there's these little two pins here that catch the film and slow it down for a 1 24th of a second. So it's held vacuum sucked to this lens and held in place to be projected out of there and then peeled off and it does that 24 times a second. So these tiny little pins come in to catch the film. You can barely see them, they're so small. So these two little pins here, they come down, they catch the film, slow it down and then they release it. And that moves and that, these are the noises we're getting, they're clack, 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 clack. Or film going through and it's quite, quite loud. The, the benefits of, of digital is, you know, it's the same time every time. You know, you don't scratch the digital print. Whereas this, it will age with time. But generally, with the tender love and care this gets, we have films run for 2,000 runs. And this projector is t over 20 years old now and still still running. Wow. Still doing what it should be. Yeah. The, the, the truth is, there aren't many people that have that, that level of expertise anymore because m most of these have been retired. There's only eight operational in the world now, I believe. In the, uh, world. In the world. And we're, wow. we're one of the only places in the world where we have the 70 mil and their latest uh, laser technology next to each other. And in principle, we could fire one up and then exchange it for the other. In, you know, it takes a little bit of time to, to exchange because they both need to be at the same position. Um, but we can do it. Um, we could swap from one to the other in a, in a day. Um, because yeah, yeah, these ones just pull out and this one just slots forward. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so we're, we're pretty unique in the world of cinema now. Mm. I think the average person doesn't know and for a lot of people, and including for cinemas, it's about convenience. This takes a lot to maintain and operate. Yeah. That is simpler. The, the film projection technology operates at such a high quality. When digital projection came in in sort of like late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. it was of a worse quality. But most or many cinemas switched over to it because it was cheaper, it was more convenient. 2K, uh, well, yeah, yeah. 2K um, And that was something the audience just had to accept. Or maybe some people didn't even notice, plenty did. Now project laser and digital technologies are getting up there. And that's why we decided to, you know, this was a good time to, to sort of get involved with that but it's, it's interesting that for the audience for, for you know maybe 20 years many people have been broadly experiencing something that's lesser than what we had before. I wanted to take us to the projection booth first because it perfectly captures something of what I'm driving at when I talk about legacy digital labour. What we see in Matt's work with the IMAX projector is a fully realised version of legacy technical labour in this case, the machinery Matt works with has a long history. It needs nurture and patience to be loved and cared for, to be attuned to. Here's a corner of the museum where the kit has value above and beyond being a tool for enabling great visitor experience, but as a material object, a work of art in and of itself. 
There's a digital labour legacy at the heart of the Science Museum and it's in a place sometimes overlooked in the work of the cinema projectionist staff. The Science Museum has incorporated this legacy and made it part of its future. There were two individuals I spoke to at the museum who had between them almost 80 years of experience working at Science Museum Group. I'm Tim Boone. I've worked at the Science Museum for 39 years, first in the museum's lecture service as a technician, then as various grades of curator in the medical department, from the year 2000 head of collections and from 2010 head of research. So in other words, I've done lots of (laughs) jobs in my time here, about a dozen. Wow. Okay. I'm a lifer. Um, and that's a style of work which um, was the norm when I joined the museum. Um, it's quite uncommon now to spend more than a couple of decades here. Um, that's social change for you. Um, the encapsulation I use for CV and so on is that I'm a curator and historian of the public culture of science working as Head of Research for the Science Museum Group. And here's Dave Patton. I'm Head of New Media at Science Museum Group, um, and I've been here for 30... I'd need to check. It's it's somewhere between (laughs) 35 and 37 years, and I've kind of given up counting. Right, well, fair enough. So, and I I visited the museum a lot as a child, um, partly because my best friend at primary school, his father was a black taxi driver. So when he used to work on a Saturday, he'd drop my friend and I outside one of the museums in London in the morning and then pick us up when he went home from work in the evening. So we spent a lot of time in all of the London museums in a way that you just can't do anymore, but then it was acceptable to be sort of seven or eight and wandering around a museum for a day on your own. Um, so I came to the museum initially... Um, as part of a gallery services team to maintain exhibits. My background's in electronics. Uh, and I'd done that for... It, it was probably less than three months. And they were building software and realised that I'd had some experience before I came to the museum of writing software. Um, so I got a computer and a little room and I started building digital exhibits. Individually... Tim and Dave help us understand the computer legacy of the 80s and 90s through their experience in two distinct areas. The digital labour that emerged within collections management, that's Tim, and the digital labour that evolved in creating museum interactives, that's Dave. Tim and Dave help us to grasp how technology has changed the way museum work gets done from two unique perspectives. How we use it to collect and catalogue items in museums, back of house, and how we use it to educate and entertain, front of house. Personal computers began to be more common, and so the senior staff began to um, be bought computers. Um, This is before standardisation, I remember. I moved into the medical department, the welcome department, at the end of 1985, and that's when I became a collections curator. Um, and my boss from 1986, um, she had an a computer, um, and they were so new. I mean, people were using them, um, but the disc got full, and so she stopped using it. 
Mm. Um, so it was a very unfamiliar world compared to today. Now, when I say I was here when the Science Museum's first inventory computer was switched on, um, I believe the Prime computer, which was a mini computer, which was housed in the library, mm -hmm. which was then across the road in Imperial College, I believe that was switched on in April 1984. Wow. Okay. Um, and it was purchased um, to computerise the uh, catalogue of the Science Museum Library uh, and also to uh, enable a computer inventory of the museum's object collections to be stored on the computer. Before that, it was all a matter of ledgers and files and um, six by four cards. So I, as a young museum assistant, I was actually very keen to get stuck into using this tool. And so essentially it was a way that you kept your inventory, um, made comparisons between what was in the formal record and what you could find on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, sp I spent three years as a museum assistant there, and a lot of the texture of the work was to start work on a particular collection, to make a printout, to take the printout to the store, to tick off where the individual items actually were, to go back to the museum, and to load up those locations onto the computer and then gradually to begin to enhance the catalogue descriptions of those objects. Because I'm a historian of science and technology as well as a geek. The fundamental data records that we have in the MIMSI database, which are squirted out into collections online, they derive from the stock checking record cards of assistant curators. Right. So okay. these six by four cards, you can see one in the blog that mm -hmm. Kalyan and I published. Yeah. Um, these six four by six by four cards. Yeah. Every assistant curator um, generally had two runs of these. Um, um, the main one of which was in um, inventory number order, which basically means you know from the inventory number is the year in which a thing was formally acquired plus a serial number. So everything collected from whenever your collection happened to come to, into existence up to the present. Um, it had, these would tend to have a very basic description. Um, um, and on these cards would be marked in pen and pencil and the, successive, um, the successive locations of objects which would be kept up by the assistant curators, museum assistants and also records of uh, our references to photographs that have been taken of the objects. Um, that was the data source from which the uh, online catalogue was populated. Right. So these are not the institution's knowledge of those objects and the collections to which they belong. Mm -hmm. That knowledge was held both in the minds of curators, but also for many decades in a very extraordinary sequence of publications. So these are detailed catalogues 
which printed the very detailed labels that were that were next to the objects in, in, in the displays, which contain you know, for a lot of objects several hundred words worth of, of prose about the objects, um, and which are a codification of how curators generally before the Second World War thought about the objects in their collections. So it's a very technical type of history. Right. But it is replete with names and places and dates, references, all sorts of things. That was not the source we went to when we switched on the computer and made the, com made the records. So we did not choose the best codified knowledge of the collections we had. What is fascinating in what Tim is saying here is that essentially, with the introduction of a computerised database for cataloguing collections, came the erasure of a lot of learned and lived institutional knowledge. In other words, the entry of computers into the collecting practices of Science Museum Group potentially disrupted years of curatorial expertise. Academic Lisa Blackman would describe what was lost as a form of haunted or ghostly data, which through new digital methods, might productively be put back into circulation and, in so doing, I quote, marginal agencies, displaced actors and entities and temporalities once thought fugitive or fossilised, end quote, can be made visible. Now, in the third decade of the 21st century, Tim is leading Congruence Engine, a three-year research project that uses the latest digital techniques to reinstall some of this haunted and ghostly institutional knowledge, at the same time connecting industrial history collections held in different locations that have never before been connected. All the publications which, which housed the much more technical, rich history... Yeah. Presumably they kind of went into obsolescence without being really used for the most part, or are they now being kind of reignited or...? Well, I, I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm seeking to reignite them. Okay. Uh, I mean, one of, the, one of the things I'm going to do in Congruence Engine, I very much hope, um, is to, um, to digitise at least the textiles machinery catalogue. Um, right. Which is, uh, I find the copy on my desk is at least, is exactly 100 years old. Um, um, as part of the experiment in you know, bringing together relevant data about the textile industry, it seems to me that would be an interesting thing to do. Mm. And that grows, that proposition grows from my experience of observing Heritage Connector. You may remember that we spoke about the work of Heritage Connector, an Arts and Humanities Research Council funded project led by the Science Museum Group in episode two. That project used data analysis approaches to build links at scale between catalogues, published material and Wikidata. Congruence Engine builds on Heritage Connector, aiming not only to resolve some of the collateral damage from when computers entered the museum and began to be used in collections management, but to help build new, more expansive links across and between collections. By Blackman's understanding, such a task demonstrates, and I quote again, the importance of attending to ghostly matters in the shaping and management of the organisation of scientific knowledge production. The data that represent our collections online are not strong mm -hmm. and they are very inconsistent. We've never successfully applied 
standard taxonomies, for example. Um, what we have is hundreds of thousands of individual records of things which are sometimes comparable and sometimes not. You know, it's almost as though, you know, one inventory number will be steel pin and another one will be box of steel pins, another one will be uh, milliner's shop, mm. pins included, you know, <laughs> and they all have the same status uh, within, within the data we have. So it, that's to say that they're not, they're very not, they're not very orderly, mm -hmm. um, and then the stance of the, of, of the object descriptions really depend on um, whether they are those bald records which come from um, stock-taking cards or whether they are, whether they've had the benefit of some data retention. Right. As for example, when we've placed them online and written longer uh, imagery descriptions. One of the aims of Heritage Connector was to see whether it was possible to, to work with that poor quality of data mm -hmm. automatically to be able to make links between the data describing individual objects and other similar things. And Heritage Connector has done that using its name entity recognition and uh, all those other uh, techniques that, that, that are used there. So I think, um, you know, in terms of research projects, we often talk of proof of concept, and I think we've got proof of concept. Um, and we will build on that in, in Congruence Engine. But it's not the only thing we're going to do. And I think the grounds for creativity are somewhat in not only doing that very clever data science that has happened in Heritage Connector, but also saying, also looking at things like um, the off-the-shelf tools which are available for doing things like geolocation geo um, and spatial mapping. Mm -hmm. of, of collections of, of data um, because that too would allow you to bring together things from different collections which spoke to the same topic. Um, pins on a map which represented films from the BFI, television programmes from the BBC, uh, archives held in a distant town, um, machine tools held in the Science Museum in London the mill building itself in Bradford. You know, to be able to bring together those different things in a visual way mm. might turn out to be very potent in terms yeah. of um, what we're trying to do with the project. Mm -hmm. And when I say what we're trying to do with the project, it's in my mind a lot of, a lot of our work is to do with um, helping the people who work digitally and the people who work historically to be able to speak some of the same language mm. because I think that once the um, once the curators and historians understand what it is that the digital people can do now and once the digital people understand the sorts of questions that the historians and curators would want to be able to answer surely we must end up with um, a sharper set of tools yeah. for the linking of collections. So if you like, it's, it, it's trying to make, it's trying to help 
the digital humanities approach to collections. Be more tuned to what users might actually want to do. While Tim was writing on stock checking cards and starting to input data into the museum's early computers, Dave was in a different part of the museum, devising ways of using technology to interact with visitors on the museum floor. I guess as I was starting, it was as the museum was just starting to put digital exhibits on the floor of the museum. Um, So when I joined, we were just finishing off a a gallery about plastics and there were a couple of screen-based exhibits there. Uh, The first iteration of Launchpad, which is basically what they got me to do, is build four exhibits for the first iteration of Launchpad, which is the forerunner of Wonder Lab. Uh, and then things for the space gallery when that was that reopened in say 1985 kind of coming to do this it was it was the kind of different things it was more graphical but it but at the same time it was you were kind of pushing you know pushing quite hard at what computers could do but the stakes were much lower so you know when you're just doing things for a display it's not like you're doing something that's hooked up to a patient in an operating theatre it's um yeah, the museum was really supportive, and the museum, I mean, before I came, really kind of made the decision that I guess happened in quite a lot of big museums in, in the 80s about whether to engage with digital tech as a kind of interpretive media, um, and, and some did, but this museum you know, absolutely seized that as a great opportunity to do some of the things we wanted to do, and, and some didn't. So what, one, one thing was computers then were much simpler, so it was much easier to understand what was going on at a kind of an individual component level. So you kind of understood really what was happening inside a processor. I, I grew up in London in the you know, mid-70s. I was a hardcore punk in the mid-70s. And part of that was, and it was the lasting thing for all of the people that I know from back then, it wasn't... The music was important, but actually the really important thing was empowerment. It was that you can do anything and you can do it yourself and you know people went into publishing fashion design technology and there's a whole group of people that went through that and it was like if you really put your mind to it anything is possible and you can really do it and you don't need to do the things in the way they've been done before you can rethink all of those things and again that was a really exciting time for technology where you know there was this new platform the personal computer which was cheap enough for individuals to afford um, that suddenly you could do things and you weren't you know you weren't trying to book 10 minutes of processing time on a mini computer somewhere uh, that you know you had to really justify why you were doing it the computers were cheap enough that actually you could have one and you didn't need to run it all the time every day and you could play and experiment with it on the way that you know outside of university research was really hard to do on the on minis and mainframes because of the cost of them While Dave was working on digital interactives at Science Museum and understanding how visitors were or weren't interacting with new in-gallery experiences, he was also, at the same time, a bystander to a parallel society-wide phenomenon of new digital technology gradually altering all our daily behaviours. Indeed, behavioural psychology, understanding how audiences tick, seems to be a large part of Dave's job sometimes more than dealing with the technology itself. So one of the really early exhibitions I worked on, we thought we would uh, put a track ball in. These were kind of really, really new. So we got a track ball and we did some work and, and it was taking audiences 
it was minutes, you know, like sometimes 10 minutes to work out that there was a connection between this thing that you did this with and something that moved on the screen and there was a direct relationship between those two things because they were completely unfamiliar. I had no, there was no point of reference. Uh, and and so, so then we kind of flip back to you know, other things where you know, we were using early infrared touchscreens or just push buttons where people had more of a sense of, of what to do. And then, and then of course, you know, Windows, it's probably Windows 3 was the kind of big tipping point where suddenly lots of people became conversant with a mouse. And then, and then that trackable thing was really simple because they understood that if you move something, it, there's a direct action on screen. Um, and you kind of see the thing, you know, with, with um, almost in reverse, with, with the kind of iPhone model, that suddenly lots of people have got a device in their pocket where the interaction on screen has really changed. And it's not just touching, it's swiping, it's pinching. And they suddenly come into the museum and they think that all screens work in the same way. Yeah. And then you're kind of, you're dealing with the opposite, where people are doing that and it doesn't do anything. And then they're not sure if they've done something wrong or, you know, it's broken or... And, and we're kind of living in this odd world at the moment where that's, that's the language people bring from outside the museum, but actually there's a core of people who visit museums who have learnt this behaviour in a museum, that in a museum actually lots of it is just touching, it's not swiping and dragging. And, and at the, So now what you have to do is really cater for both of those methods of interaction, which makes it tricky for a while. You can't just take everything and say, OK, everything's swipe and, and pinch... Mm. You've still got to cope with the people that just touch. To me, what you've seen through your career here is like this evolving of the history of human behaviour with technology as well. Yeah. How people yeah. change, which is really yeah. and yeah, about ult- ultimately, it's you know, it's the, the tech is a really interesting because at one level, I really don't care about the tech, and it, you know, my mm. my kind of my my long term ambition, and I'm, it's not going to happen while I'm at the museum, but is. I would make all of the tech disappear. And it doesn't mean it's not there. Mm. It's just it's much less obvious to visitors. So I'd like to see far less screens. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't mean to say that people won't be having really deep, intense digital interactions. It just won't be through a square piece of glass. Mm. Um, and, and ultimately, the technology is just a tool for telling those stories. Yeah. Um, and it shouldn't be anything more than that. Time and again throughout this series, we've heard different members of staff at Science Museum Group describe technology as a tool by which audiences experience the museum. People first, technology second. Here's Tim. So curators might say, look, we don't need to be digital, mate, because you know, we're doing this bit and that's fine. And oh, that stuff's terribly difficult and I don't understand it and I don't want to do it. But what I would observe is that since 1984, when the computer was switched on, the digital versions of collections have changed how we work. So I described how we would make a printout of all or part of a collection. Mm. We would go to the store, we would note down where things are, we would go back, we would enter the data. Then we would do a sort and we would then subtract out all the records which didn't have a location, then we would go and look for those until there were only a few that we couldn't find. And that's what we did as, as, as assistant curators. And then, as I say, we began to think that the data record was where we should put uh, the expert cataloguing that we were, to some extent, able to do because we could have an hour in the library and look some things up and enhance. So. The fact that the computer 
record was there as a tool which we could edit and hone was part of how we came to work mm. as curators in a way that previous generations might well have made a note on the Form 100 in pencil. Tim's emphasis here on the computer being an instrument for curatorial practice, just as a pencil was for previous generations of curators, reminded me of something Laura Humphreys, Curatorial and Collections Engagement Project Manager for Science Museum Group, had described regarding the legacy traces left by museum staff working with the collections that she is now helping to move from Blythe House to the new National Collection Centre in Rawton. You're going to hear some clonking noises in this next bit. They're the ambient sounds of lots of activity happening in the National Collection Centre as Laura and I stroll through chatting. So they were, they're the people that figured it out and got us to the point we're at today, but there were less, if and in some cases, no standards for information or collecting. A lot of people were collecting because it was interesting. There wasn't like a policy or like a, OK, let's think about this, because in 130 years, um, some poor soul is going to have to try and find space for this. They were thinking about the future because that's why they were collecting and preserving mm. things, but they just didn't know what would face them. So I think we're quite open now that we know and we're all sort of hiding notes and things in the database. So saying, sorry, forgive us, we're doing our best. That's so cool, though, that you're putting stuff on the database now that someone in 50, 60, 70 years will read and have to... It'll be their responsibility yeah, then. Yeah, but we're trying... So we're trying, like, to use things like the notes field to say... We got this far with this mystery object. We, ha- we ran out of time, we had to move it, but this is the research we've done. So putting notes in like that to try and say, we weren't able to fix this, but this is how far we've got for whoever picks it up, whether it's tomorrow or in 50 years. We're trying to, trying to minimise the issues for the future, but I've no doubt we're, we're missing something and I'm always expecting a time traveller to turn up and just slap me some point for something. I love the idea though that you're leaving traces for the next round of museum workers. Yeah and we're, it's really cool. We've, we're very aware of it. It's all of, it's all of my team's job is solving mysteries and working out how we how do we come by this thing? What is this thing attached to? It, it looks like it could be those two things but it hasn't got a number so trying to puzzle it out. It's a lot of collections based detective work and a lot of that is because of something that happened before any of us were born mm. with the collection, which is also why we have like collecting policies, collecting board, that really heavy-duty board of survey process for removing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we try and standardise and like show our working more so that people might understand and might forgive us for the things that we've done wrong. New computing technologies are helping museum staff like Tim and Laura communicate their curatorial and collections decisions in clearer, more helpful ways to their colleagues to come. Meanwhile, for Dave, new technologies have propelled a different form of labour in the museum, a form of labour that involves continually seeking to better understand how audiences interact with the museum through different kinds of technology. Kind of really starting to dig in, you know, kind of what's what's really going on here and what are people you know how do people use their mobiles outside the museum and inside the museum why are they downloading apps Uh, and and of course what you find is people have got a set of behaviors that they use in everyday life and if you if you do things that utilize those behaviors chances are they'll work pretty well Mm -hmm. if you try and get people to learn new things just because they happen to be in a museum 
why are you going to do that? You, you know, you're going to spend three hours, of, you know, maybe a year yeah. or maybe every few yeah. years. It's like, why would you learn a new behaviour? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the things that people are doing on their mobile phones, the things that and they want to do are they want to create social moments. They want to do, you know, take pictures. Mm-hmm. They want to share things because that's what they're doing everywhere else. So, yeah. yeah, if you want people to engage with their phones, make great moments. You know, create some great vistas or signposts where those things are, where you mm-hmm. you can take a great picture. Um, yeah, or you can share something that's that's impactful mm-hmm. or insightful. Um, you know, it's a bit like playing chess. You've got to look a few moves ahead and look yeah. at the consequences. If you change your behaviour, yeah. does that have any consequences? And, and do I need to do anything? You know, can I? Or do I need to do anything about it at that point? But it's like, yeah, a visit to the museum is, is, is not just when you're here. It's your journey to the museum. It's yeah. when you're here. It's your journey home. Yeah, and yes. if you mess any of that up, it's like it taints your whole experience of that day. Mm. Yeah, if, if, you, if your trains are delayed. I mean, I, I guess the important thing is about the way we develop stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because we, uh, we, we work ma- mainly with external agencies, so we commission external agencies to do the software build. Um, but we have a very iterative development process, so we do a lot of prototype testing. Okay. We have you know, probably the world's leading audience research department and everything gets tested multiple times with real visitors in the museum and it gets tested by our audience research department not the companies that are building it not by us who are commissioning that work so it's independently tested and then and then we kind of take all of that feedback from visitors and we feed that back in different ways to people in the software so sometimes it's we'll just feed back a problem not a solution because actually that's why we're employing the agencies is to be creative about the solutions or sometimes we might actually give you know, pretty firm advice on you can't do this, you absolutely need to be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but that testing with visitors is so important mm-hmm. uh, and it makes a real difference to how usable things are and the, uh, the kind of the learning outcomes that people take away from a particular experience. And the, and the other thing is when we're commissioning digital works, we're really clear about what it's doing. So what are the learning outcomes what do you want people to take away from that experience? And you can't take too many things away. Mm. Uh, so you can't overburden the software. It's got to have one or two things that you want people to understand or experience or learn about during that, that digital experience. If it has too many, yeah. people take nothing. So one or two really, really strong messages. Um, that, it's got to be short. And that thing to do with um, the prototype kind of approach mm-hmm. and testing what, what was that born with that kind of uh, so and it, it comes out and it started um, I'm going to say in the late 80s I guess and we set an interpretation unit up in the museum um, and we were, te- we were testing all sorts of things so it, was, it was like formative and summative evaluation for whole exhibitions um, to, to try and make you know, to try and learn things from exhibitions we've done that we could apply to future exhibitions and that formative evaluation was to try and help us understand what do visitors know already and where are their kind of sticking points you know if, we, if we're going to build an exhibition on I don't know space travel where are visitors at already on that and so where are the gaps and their knowledge that we might need to get them up to a level playing field and then how much can we build on that and, and then your summative at the end is kind of to you know so how much of that can we achieve what worked what didn't what should we learn for next time? And, th- and then we started to break that down and do that for components of exhibitions and digital, because of the way it's developed, because you can be very iterative about it. 
means that you can kind of test at different stages. So you can do really early prototype testing just on paper or like, you know, just on digital storyboards. And you can just show visitors and get visitors to talk you through what they're seeing, what choices they'd make. And you can learn really important things from that. And you find that even, you know, even in late prototypes, making really small changes can make a big difference in people's ability to use or understand something. Yeah, moving something from you know, the top of the screen to the middle of the screen affects whether people see it or not. Changing the shape of a, of a button can affect whether people are going to press it or not or touch it or see it. Changing the way that you feedback on an action to, to give visitors a sense that, yeah, we know you've done something, here's the change it's made, so you make that obvious to people. Makes a big difference. Getting that right and getting that wrong makes mm-hmm. a big difference to usability and comprehension. I like that that came in in the late 80s, your way of thinking about that, because I don't think that's the case with lots of no, it, I mean, we, we were probably one of the first. And, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, it, I mean, it starts from whole exhibitions. I mean, I guess the digital stuff, you know, kind of gradually evolved out of that through the 90s. Um, but it, it wasn't an easy fight for the people that were doing that work. I mean, there was, you know, there was a, a strong sense of um, what have we got to learn from visitors? We're the experts. You know, this is we're telling the story, um, and, and it took a long while before people accepted. It wasn't. It wasn't. You were going to. You know, it wasn't that was designed to change the story. It was designed to help that story maybe be better told and, and be yeah. understandable by the end audience. Because ultimately, you're, you're ceding a level of control to your audience at that point. Yeah. So you're you're involving them in some way in the process. So it isn't, a, you know, it, it's not a highbrow curator saying, "This is my, you know, I'm going to put my life my life's work in front of you. It's a take it or leave it. This is what I think. Mm-hmm. This is my view." What we hear here is repetition of a theme that has played out throughout this series that of the museum having to adjust its historically assumed role as expert through the adoption and adaption of new digital technologies. There is a much longer, more detailed history of institutional change specific to Science Museum, which I could go into here, related to larger shifts in what Science Museums believed their purpose was, and what government and wider society felt their purpose should be. Please let me refer you to Tim's excellent book chapter on this, a link to which will be in the blurb to this episode. Suffice to say, since the mid-80s, there was sometimes a productive, sometimes antagonistic tension between different museum mindsets across the Science Museum, as Tim describes it, between, and I quote, cultures of technical museum, social historical medical museum, and interactive educational museum, end quote. Throughout this series, we've seen the legacy of these tensions play out in the use and management of new digital technologies. But you know, the other thing you have to be really careful of is it should the visitors should never feel that they've failed or it's their fault. It's always it's our fault if we don't get it right. But if the visitors feel they've done something wrong, we've absolutely failed um, because they're not, they're never doing anything wrong. They're, they're just behaving as visitors. We you know we've done something wrong in, in actually not anticipating or testing enough to understand what they're going to do in particular circumstances. The entry of the computer into the Science Museum not only heralded changes in the way museum curators and interpreters do their work. 
It brought with it an ever-growing and unwieldy backlog of data on a scale difficult to imagine or articulate. While I was undertaking this study, Science Museum Group hired their first digital preservation manager to the excitement of many. We first heard from Samaya in episode three. Let's hear her now on how legacy digital labour has informed her new role for the group. It is digital preservation manager. It's the first digital preservation manager role that they've had, but it encompasses, and the list goes on, um, implementing, so procuring and implementing a digital preservation system, developing and putting in place a digital preservation service, dealing with decades worth of legacy content at some point in time. And I, I use the word content rather than digital objects because we're dealing with more than just digital objects in the collection. We do have libraries and archives and corporate records, etc., etc. So, um, yes, it is my role is around the preservation, but it is also supporting the collecting activity, so acquisition of digital content. And then, <laughs> then there is some guidance around um, oral history and trying to standardise that, you know, coming at it from a preservation perspective. Um, there is some guidance for corporate records because preservation of corporate records also falls within my remit. And then I get asked other questions too around either kind of general information questions or things that might have a longer-term lifespan that come through an exhibition program. So it is it is a very wide scope of a role, put it that way. So I'll say half of it is firefighting. Um, and another part of it, there are many halves to this, so it doesn't add up into a whole, it adds up into several holes. Um, but... Another part of it is actually helping people work out, is this a priority or not? Because what might be a priority for them is not necessarily the priority for the organisation. But a lot of digital preservation is kind of organisational change. It's not really come in and just do the stuff that you've been hired to do. It's, it is a broader scope of shifting thinking and also rethinking because it's not just a matter of putting in place what other organizations have done but it takes a long time to justify the need let alone the benefit for preserving digital content and i think for organizations when they started to leaving the born digital collecting out of it just started to have that ability to digitise and make some stuff available. Lots of organisations have done that. Digitise, make available, keep a few hard drives, keep a bit of server space, um, and then that starts to scale and then they realise they've got a bit of a mess and then no one knows where the preservation masters are. So we're not unique in, in that equation, let's call it. You may remember in episode three that we heard from Olivia Weeks, Associate Archivist for Audiovisual Collections at National Railway Museum in York, who described some of the areas of the collection she looks after where digital preservation had become a necessity. I guess the huge thing would be digitising 
reels, nitrate film especially, really creating yeah. like digital preservation copies of things that may not survive for very much longer or are really delicate or can't be removed from the cold stores because they may burst into flames, <laughs> things like that. So that's a really important aspect of it. But I think secondly, it's the access element, of course. It always is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, digital copies of things are so much more accessible to everyone, to me, to us readers, to everyone, because only specialists can... Uh, project 16 millimeter mm-hmm. film but anyone can press a button on a screen to to watch something so as kind of more and more people want to to view film and sound archives I think it's it's going to be interesting at how people kind of use the new technology in regards to access such as like viewing online publishing online mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's really interesting because that comes with a whole host of ethical legal, technological issues, really. For Olivia, one of the main benefits of digital preservation is that it broadens access to the collections. By digitising something, you can add subtitles or audio description and provide access to an item without requiring travel to the repository. For Samaya, the drive to preserve digitally has become entangled, with more existential questions to do with how cultural institutions deal with their own histories, and how they place more emphasis on the present and the future than the past. Everyone's everyone's scrambling with it a little bit, and because preservation is a thing that can potentially technically happen after the fact... Right, everyone's keen on making the deadline for the exhibition opening or for the film premiere or whatever industry you work in. And then the clean up the mess afterwards, you can do that (laughs) to a degree. And so that's part of the why is it so big and overwhelming is because it's just multiple projects over several decades of clean up. And digital preservation is very rarely about the present. It's actually about all the stuff that should have been done decades ago and you're very much living in the past or all the stuff that's coming down the line that's quite experimental now that you have to plan for. So I, I rarely exist personally in the present. I'm very much in the past and the future and that's I'm going to blame that on my role, but who knows, maybe that's just me. There's a final factor around legacy digital labour that I must briefly mention here, although not for as long as it deserves. And that is the issue of cybersecurity. When I spoke with members of the ICT team at Science Museum Group, they were clear that a key conflict in all new forms of digital collecting, including the preservation of digital content, is compliance with cyber essentials. Cybersecurity has really, the focus has come about because of the pandemic. We need to find a way of having collections infrastructure that somehow aligns with what is permissible through cybersecurity infrastructure or cybersecurity controls. Um, and, and that's part of the challenges we're try- trying to understand both what we need to put in place for collections infrastructure and how that may or may not align with cybersecurity. Olivia said something similar about the oral histories that were in the collection at National Railway Museum. I think there is downsides to obviously these new digital technologies coming in. Everything's much more accessible because 
people are more aware of it and people do realize that what they say may be put on the internet be published for the world to to kind of listen to but especially relating to kind of our oral histories that we have here um we don't put them online it's too it's just a minefield um legally with um because once something's online it's kind of it's out there it might feel strange to begin to draw this episode to a close with the topic of internet safety but it's really important as we are all too aware Online environments have become ripe with misinformation and aggression, and museums and museum workers are not exempt from this reality. Issues connected with cybersecurity can be a sticking point for institutions that operate solely for the greater good of their collections and their audiences. Museum staff more than ever need to be cognizant of how their work fits into the wider world of information security. Whatever industry you're studying in, there should be an aspect of how does that job exist in the physical world and the virtual digital world. Um, and I think I think that's the trying to find balance answer. So rather than just saying this is all about digital skills, this is actually about appreciating the range of different skills that are needed to do any one job in any one discipline. This episode opened with Tony and Bradford reflecting on how the internet changed the way she did her job, followed by Mark and Matt discussing the subtle, honed-over-years technical labour involved in the maintenance and use of IMAX projectors at the Science Museum. Tim discussed how the first computers in the museum radically altered and disfigured previous generations of collecting practice, helping conjure up a utopian picture of what could be possible next through new computing techniques. Dave discussed his learnings over a lifetime of working with interactive displays and a kind of digital autodidacticism that we've heard previously seeped out of his insights regarding the gradual changes of audience behaviour with the emergence of new technologies. Finally, Samaya and Olivia discussed the thorny topic of digital preservation and how the job of organising and preserving legacy data is not just a difficult one, but also a subjective one. My thanks go to all who so generously participated in this episode. The recent history of computers has affected labour practices in all sorts of places in the museum and will continue to do so as long as there is digital technology in the museum, i.e. forever. While some of this legacy is time-consuming and problematic, much of it has paved the way for the sophisticated digital labour practices that we now see across Science Museum Group. In the next and final episode of this series, I'll be focusing on the uniquely collective nature of digital activity undertaken by volunteers across the group. We will reflect on how, through collaborative forms of digital labour, the museum is bringing in more horizontal, inclusive approaches to working with its audiences, setting the scene for the Science Museum to come. Thank you for listening. See you here next time at The Hidden Constellation. You've been listening to The Hidden Constellation, presented by me, Dr Sophie Frost. Voice actors are Chris Thorpe Tracy, Reefa Thorpe Tracy, 
Ben Murray and Stephen Orchard. Sound design and editing is by Chris Thorpe Tracy of Lo-Fi Arts. My thanks go to everyone who participated in this episode, and most of all to the Science Museum Group, for their time and generosity in letting me ask lots of questions for well over a year. This podcast has been created as part of the One by One Research Initiative, led by the School of Museum Studies at the University of Leicester and funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. Thank you for listening. Don't fly up.